KFSK Shelby Herbert, that's me, has the story on Dieter Close, who is passing the torch to the next generation of legendary climbers. Standing outside his little cabin on the edge of the rainforest, Dieter Close gazes out at the ocean. He built this place in the shadow of the giant rock. On this day, a wall of fog blocks his view, but Close knows exactly what's behind those clouds. It looks just like a, a German beer stein. It's a little wider at the bottom, so it doesn't tip over when you're drunk. There's only room for one person at the top, and you can just barely stand if you have the courage. Close stood there himself, twice. He can't even count how many unsuccessful climbs it took. His best guess is a dozen. He's the only person to make it halfway up the unclimbed northwest face and come back alive. Close has been climbing since he was a kid. He moved to Petersburg in 1982. At first, he lived behind a cemetery in a borrowed tent. It got torn up by a bear. And a friend of mine told me, hey, there's a boat for sale for 200 bucks. And I thought, great, and I'll get to look at Devil's Sum. Close says it wasn't love at first sight or first summit. His enchantment with the mountain grew over the course of his life. It had everything I wanted from, from mountains, everything that satisfied me by climbing. It's difficult by any side, and it, it's not super high altitude, which is great. You're totally alone. And it's a wild-looking thing. Close is a home builder by trade. He hurt his back at work a few years ago. The injury all but ended his climbing career. But he's still known to climbers in the region as the godfather of the Stikine ice caps. I mean, Dieter is uh, he's key to anybody who comes here to climb. That's world-class climber Tommy Caldwell. He came up north recently to climb Devil's Thumb and shoot a documentary about it. Dieter advised him and his climbing partner, Alex Honnold. I mean, there's just nobody else that knows nearly as much about the Devil's Thumb. Yeah. He's like the local custodian. He's like managing the mountain. Close helped draft their route. It tags every peak up and down the whole massif, over the twin summits of the Witch's Towers, the slender Cat's Ears Spires, and then the looming cathedral of Devil's Thumb itself. Caldwell says those features were as wicked as the sound of their names. All of the summits are like incredibly pointy. Yeah, you climb up it and you're sitting on the summit and there's like thousands and thousands of feet drop on either side of you. It's one of the more like exposed feeling summits I've ever seen in my life. Hours before they left Alaska, both climbers came by to write in a book that Dieter Close keeps about the mountain. It contains the names of everybody to ever summit in living history. Alex and Tommy sketched out a map of their route that took up two whole pages. Back in front of his cabin, Close gazes across the sound. He says the view is actually better from down here. You're not necessarily enjoying yourself. On, on difficult climbs. You're getting tired and thirsty, hungry, all of that. And it's not until you get back into the valley and look up at that mountain, and then you get some real joy out of it. Climbing Devil's Thumb today would be difficult for him. But Dieter Close says he still dreams about one last summit. In Petersburg, I'm Shelby Herbert. 
The National Park Service has identified the two people who are presumed dead in a plane crash last week in Wrangell-St. Elias National Park. Officials say Clayton McMartin and Melissa McMartin from Roanoke, Texas, were believed to be on the plane. Alaska state troopers reported on August 28th that a Beechcraft Bonanza carrying two people had gone missing after leaving Glen Allen the day before on the way to Ketchikan. The plane was last heard from 18 miles inland of Cape Yakutaga near Yakutat. A U.S. Coast Guard aircraft spotted the wreckage in a glaciated area with deep crevasses near Mount Leeper in Wrangell-St. Elias National Park on August 28th. The Park Service said rescue efforts were suspended over the weekend due to the weather and that the focus is on recovery now because so much time has passed since the crash. The new Head Start facility in Unalaska opened to children on Tuesday. The education program prepares students under five for primary school while also passing on Unanga traditions. Sophia stewart Rossi reports from the grand opening late last month. The event started with a blessing led by a Russian Orthodox priest flown in from Anchorage. It's the grand opening of the new Head Start facility in Unalaska. Father Jonah Andrew is blessing the newly constructed building. He's walking through the bright white hallways holding a lit candle as singing choir trails behind. Head Start is a federal program. In Unalaska, it's run by the Aleutian Pribilof Islands Association, a regional nonprofit tribal organization. According to APIA, the new facility is five times bigger than the island's previous Head Start building. At the new facility's grand opening, Unanga culture served a central role. Mary Ellen Fritz is the director of APIA's Department of Family and Community Development. She says starting the event with a blessing ceremony is important. Starting out from the very beginning, the right way and the Alaska Native way to make sure that our building is set up in a place where we honor our Creator and we put God's protection upon our children and families as part of our culture. Russian Orthodoxy plays a large role in everyday life in Unalaska, where dozens of locals gather regularly for services like the annual starring celebrations for Russian Orthodox Christmas. Unalaska's Church of the Holy Ascension is the oldest cruciform-style Russian Orthodox Church in North America. Services are conducted in three languages, including Unangam Tanu, the language of the Unanga people. Fritz says the Head Start program helps to ensure that cultural practices remain a part of early childhood education. Making sure we're restoring the Anungan language, making sure the children hear the songs and the sounds of the language, and putting a foundation in place to start rebuilding community-wide knowledge of the language that was lost so many years ago. The new Head Start building is dedicated to the late Maria Turnpaw, who was known for preserving and sharing Unangan traditions with children. During Turnpaw's life, her family and her community were forced to evacuate Unalaska and were sent to camps in southeast Alaska by the U.S. government. Her funeral services were held at Unalaska's Russian Orthodox Church in 2012. Fritz says it's important to thank elders that helped pave the way so that today's Unanga children can hear and learn about their culture. And bringing Unanga culture into Head Start's education on the island will help with generational healing. Marie Schleby is Head Start's lead teacher. She says while educators give children a preschool education, they're also teaching Unanga traditions, like showing kids how to catch a fish and use plants for healing. 
So the whole cultural, you know, of, off this island, what we live for, picking berries, you know, and teaching them. I really enjoy that aspect of our culture. As the grand opening drew to a close, a group of Unalaskans performed a traditional Unanga dance in honor of the new facility. With a dance inspired by Father Michael Lestenkoff, an Orthodox priest from St. George in the Pribilof Islands. APIA's Head Start program for children ages 3 to 5 started Tuesday. Fritz says APIA is currently writing a proposal to serve infants and toddlers in the near future. In Unalaska, I'm Sophia Stewart-Rossi. Presbyterian church leaders came to Juneau last week to learn how exactly they ought to make an apology. The visit is part of a plan to formally apologize to the Tlingit community for the 1962 closure of Memorial Presbyterian Church, which destroyed an important center for the Tlingit community in downtown Juneau. Yvonne Crumry reports. Southeast Alaska Native communities have worked for decades to undo the harms of colonialism. But Tlingit language professor Rune Lance Twitchell says that for too long, the organizations that caused the harm were conspicuously absent. Jacob E. Sherman Davis once stood up at a gathering and he said, why is it just us? Where are the people who did this to us? Now, some of those people are trying to join the effort. Twitchell sat on a panel Wednesday night at the Walter Sobolev building with Clinket and Haida president Chashi Ish Richard Peterson and Sea Alaska Heritage Institute President Kahani Rosita Worrell. They spoke to church leaders about the harm religious organizations have done to Tlingit communities through language suppression and violence at boarding schools. Here's Peterson. Until about two weeks ago, I have never stood up and talked about my trauma. Couldn't do it. Now I feel like I have to, again, as a leader, that people can understand and know Worrell says that when she was putting together her presentation, she had flashbacks to when she was taken to boarding school. I had been kidnapped from my home and from my grandparents and brought to a Presbyterian mission, Haynes House. I am a strong woman, but last night, I will tell you, I saw myself, I felt myself as a six-year-old that, that cried in my bed, wondering why had I been taken from my family. Jermaine Ross Alam is the director of the church's new Center for Repair of Historical Harms. His job is to travel to places where the Presbyterian Church has created trauma and caused conflict, like Liberia. Because the Center for Repair can't tell Klingit people, well, this is what your reparation looks like. Ross Alam said he noticed a lot of joy in the work that leaders like Twitchell have done to restore language and community. And that's why he wants the Presbyterian Church to do this apology right. Presbyterian Church USA has committed $1 million in reparations. They're installing a memorial at the site of the former church on October 7th, and church leaders will read an apology October 8th. In Juneau, I'm Yvonne Crumery. A Washington man who owned two tourist stores in Ketchikan was found guilty of selling fake Alaska products for years. 59-year-old Cristobal Magno Rodrigo, who goes by Chris, was sentenced on August 28th to two years in federal prison. 
Rodrigo sold products that were produced in the Philippines, but marketed as authentic Alaska native-produced artwork, which violates the Federal Indian Arts and Crafts Act. According to the U.S. Attorney's Office in Anchorage, Rodrigo and his family ran two stores in Ketchikan, Alaska Stone Arts LLC and Rail Creek LLC, between April 2016 and December 2021. The carvings and totem poles sold at the stores were made through a company Rodrigo's wife owned in the Philippines, Rodrigo Creative Crafts. Cases are still pending against 46-year-old Glenda Tiglau Rodrigo and 24-year-old Christian Ryan Tiglau Rodrigo. Prosecutors said Rodrigo also hired Alaska Natives who told customers that the art was made by Alaska Natives from locally sourced materials. Prosecutors said the company sold over a million dollars worth of products in 2019 and in part of 2021. In addition to the two-year prison sentence, Rodrigo is also required to donate $60,000 to a vocational program run by the Central Council of the Tlingit and Haida Indian Tribes of Alaska, write a letter of apology in a Ketchikan newspaper, and serve three years of a supervised release. The nation's top environmental official says he fully supports his agency's decision to block the proposed pebble gold and copper mine in salmon-rich Bristol Bay, even as the state has asked the U.S. Supreme Court to overturn that action. For those communities that rely on the bay for sustenance, we believe that projects must pass a certain test, and, and Pebble Mine did not pass that test. Environmental Protection Agency Administrator Michael Regan began a four-day tour of Alaska on Tuesday, starting in the Bristol Bay village of Yagig. The EPA in January vetoed the mine proposal, citing concerns with possible impacts on the world's largest sockeye salmon fishery. Last month, the state of Alaska asked the, nation, the, state of Alaska asked the nation's high court to intervene. Regan's emphasis is environmental justice, and he says he wants to be on, a, on the ground in Alaska villages to see the environmental challenges and to offer funds made available by infrastructure improvement laws. Because of the president's vision around investing in America, we have historic legislation with historic resources that now we can begin to match those resources with these decade-old, uh, decades-long challenges. Other stops on Regan's trip will be Utkiavik, Fairbanks, Anchorage, and the native village of Iklutna, just north of Anchorage. For KFSK, I'm Shelby Herbert.